All right, how's everybody doing? Excited to be here. Everybody awake? Hello, hello, hello. Hello. We are here. I noticed I didn't set up as many tables because I knew it wasn't going to happen. We didn't have, we weren't going to have 50 people, so that's good. Anyway, good to see y'all. We don't have a whole lot to cover tonight. There is no, there is no pretty pictures. Oh, like no, fire. Oh. no fire. No fire. No fireworks. There might be fireworks, but it won't be on screen. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we just don't have a whole lot to cover. I think page 74 is where we're at in your syllabus. Um, but we do want to just cover a few things tonight as we do that. Before we start, uh, anything we need to pray about, I'll just kind of give you an update. Jackie Berry had her surgery today. So she just got out of surgery. Uh, John just texted me while I was here a couple minutes ago and said everything went well. So she's, you know, she's uh, unconscious probably. <laughs> We're trying to not be. And uh, I went and saw her yesterday. She was in good spirits and, and ready to do whatever the Lord would do. So that was good. So keep her in prayer. Keep John in your prayers. Because that will be a long recovery. Anything else? Ed? Yeah, you can pray for Troy and Frida come mostly in the evening when they come. Sometimes in the evening. Yeah. Ed met them. Ed met him when he was part of the Beagle Club and witnessed to him, and they started to come here. So their daughter, or his daughter, was accidentally shot, um, kind of in the hip and pelvis area, and so she had surgery yesterday. Doing, doing okay. Long recovery there, too. And uh, I got one other one, too. Um, Thursday, I'm going to be heading out with my son, Billy, up to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, he's competing in the SEAL tennis sports stuff up there. So it's like an 18-hour drive, you know, riding, because he didn't take all his equipment. So just pray that I'll have some good opportunities to some research on what is going through his mind as far as the world goes. And um, you know, just pray for good for talk and uh, safety at travel, safety with him and his computer. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Joe. <coughs> um, I had an opportunity to talk to Brother Liam yesterday for a while and he knows the gospel. He, you know, says that he prays to God, and he knows he's not saved. He knows that he, you know, he just lived in the wrong way. 
but he says that he wants to be, but he's just, I don't know, just not ready or something, he says. But I think he's going to be staying up at my dad's this week. I'm watching his place, so I'm going to try and get him to come to church on Sunday. So just ready. Okay. And he would get saved. Yeah. Well, no one gets saved unless they realize they're a sinner, so that's a good thing. Yeah, no, he, he knows that he is. Yeah, there. Just two things. Um, ASV was really good to see interpreting. And, um, he, they all enjoyed the service, and um, uh, Rosemary did what I initially invited the, she, she and her husband want to come back. She's going to schedule that, and then um, the two that came were friends who aren't saved, and they heard the gospel, or saw the gospel rather and um uh, they seem to receive it well. Um yeah, so just to praise God for keeping me for two hours. And then um also just from Tim Costing, pray for Micah. He started to feel sick this afternoon, he's been getting worse and worse. He's a high fever, he's been taken to uh his baker's house. I assume that's just some place where he can rest. So he was supposed to come over tomorrow but he won't be able to fly in Mike is out in Utah at, at Piner Bible Camp, so that's why he's talking about flying. He's yeah. Sick out there. yeah. That altitude can make you sick. <laughs> it, or maybe he just wants to stay a few more days. <laughs> <laughs> he did have it in now, but I could possibly do that. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? go to prayer. Father, we do thank you for tonight. Lord, it's been a great time together as we've just looked through your word and through these principles for understanding your word. We uh, certainly want to put them into practice, help us to recall them in our own studies and give us clarity. Lord, we do pray also tonight as we think about these requests on our mind and heart, and we pray for Jackie as she is healing now from surgery. We thank you for doctors that we can study the body and understand what you have created and made and, and even intervene in rather remarkable ways to, to help the body physically work as you designed it to work. And so we're grateful for that. We pray that she would heal quickly, that John would have the constant endurance and strength to, to care for her as needed and, uh, and however we can as a body rally around them to help with that. We pray that, that those opportunities would be clear to us and that uh, they would sense a real love <clears throat> from us. So we thank you for what you've accomplished so far. We think about Liam and his uh, uh, desire to just want to be saved. He doesn't know you, Lord. He knows he's a sinner has rejected much about you in his own heart over the years, and yet the gospel is is what penetrates. And so we're grateful that we can share the truth of Jesus Christ with him. Pray that what Joe has shared with him already would, would bear fruit in his life. <clears throat> we ask your blessing on that, that you might save him. We think about Troy and Frida's daughter and, <clears throat> and the uh, injury that she has now to uh, endure and heal. Lord, we know her spiritual condition isn't that which is part of your family, but you can save her as well. 
use it in Troy's previous life to show them that you are sovereign in all things and care for them even as you're caring for their daughter. We thank you for that. Give Ed uh, safety as he travels with his son out to Milwaukee. Lord, it's a long trip and uh, certainly trouble could, you know, it's 18 hours on the road. There's all kinds of things that go on. So, Lord, keep them safe as they travel and safe as Billy does his competition. And uh, give them an opportunity to just talk heart to heart about life and and, uh, and the gospel itself. So thank you for Ed's faithfulness in that. And, and uh, Lord, may you be honored through it. So, Lord, tonight as we as we look more into into your word, Lord, may it just penetrate our hearts and do what you see fit to do for us and with us so that you are glorified in it all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So you're on page 74 of your book, I believe. What we want to do tonight is just kind of cover the last few things that we need to talk about. There's not a whole lot here to really talk about. If you have questions about anything else, please, uh, you know, please ask those so that you don't have any confusions in your mind. It's not as if you can't ask questions after or in the future as we just interact with one another, but it's good to have them fresh on your mind. So what we want to talk about tonight, at least at the beginning, is how to how do you handle different levels of meaning in a biblical text? <clears throat> and the, really the first question that we want to ask is just that. Does Scripture contain different levels of meaning? Someone was to ask that question or you needed to answer that question, how would you answer that? Does Scripture have different levels of meaning? Say yes. Yes, I heard no. <laughs> so we're on opposite sometimes. sides of the polar, <laughs> and sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> we're all over. She said sometimes. Can you elaborate? Well, I'll say this. Um, once you have uh, studied a passage, and you understand, or at least you think you understand what it means, can somebody else take a passage and study it and come up with a different meaning? And there be two different levels of meaning. Right? We turn in your Bibles for a moment to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, you have this interesting scenario that Paul writes to the Galatian church. And he says uh, in verse 21, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one a bondwoman, the other a free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman born through the promise. Now on the surface, it, it's as if Paul is talking about actual women, right? Abraham's wives or Abraham's 
two women that were part of Abraham's family, obviously, and we understand who they are, right? Sarah and Hagar. Is there a, a, a double meaning in this passage? Uh, is he talking about literal people? And if he is talking about literal people, what is he talking about those literal people, or is he talking about something else? Right? Uh, is there an implication there? Does this passage, and if you read further all the way down to verse 31, does it imply that there's levels of meaning? Some heads are going like well, this, it, some yes, are going like this. Of, yeah. Verse 24 says, no, this may be interpreted allegorically, so can it be both? Okay, now that raises another question that we'll talk about in a minute. Is allegory another level of meaning? No, no. no yes, Joe? Well, I, the, the phrase of another level of meaning, I probably could be wrong, but it sounds more like not. Okay, go to Luke chapter 15 while you're talking. Luke 15. Just to look at another example. Verse 8 through 10 says, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, is what is what's the coin... Who's the woman? And is there some kind of double meaning going on here? I mean, you could sit around in a group of people and someone read that passage. And in some Bible studies, I've heard this kind of stuff go on. You know, uh, you know, is is she lighting a lamp because it's simply a dark house? And she can't see very well because in ancient times, houses were made of clay and didn't have really big windows, and so they needed to have lamps they couldn't see. Or is she sweeping the house because it's dark and dusty? She needs to sweep it and, and do all that kind of stuff. What is what does that stand for? Does the dark house mean it's the world? Uh, you know, is is the woman Jesus? I mean, in a in a in a larger context, is that who this is? That Jesus looks into the world and and something's lost, and he goes and finds it. I mean, is that what this is saying? No. No. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Jesus wouldn't have to light a lamp. Why wouldn't he? Because he did. He never light a lamp when he was on earth. Oh, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Chris is, Chris is telling you what it was. Okay. It tells you in the last verse. In which, which passage are you in? In Luke. Okay. It says, just like she had joy over the lost queen, this joy with angels of God when a sinner, over a sinner who repents. Oh. And in Galatians, he's telling you 
what it what the further meaning is. It's not us coming up with that further meaning. It's scripture telling you what the further meaning is. So is it further meaning? Well, in Galatians... Or is it just the meaning? I think it's just the meaning. Well, in Luke, it's just the meaning. In Galatians, there is, there's two... I mean, there are talking about Hagar and Sarah. Sure. I mean, point blank. But then, yes. Paul, um, Paul adds the additional understanding of, of the difference between the two and the two covenants and, and all that. But he's still only talking about one meaning, right? He's using them but he's still only meaning one thing. Right. So there's not a secondary level of meaning. Right. In other words, somebody can't read that and go, oh, yeah, he means this about Sarah and Hagar, that they were these two ladies and all. True, that may be true in, in, a, in a sense that Paul's using it by way of an exa- historical example, but, but, but what Paul means is not that. Right. What Paul means is what Paul means. He's using them to show what he means. And he's telling us what it means. Exactly. It's not us coming up with something. He's using the means of an illustration or allegory to to show what it is. Right. So this is is what we're trying to get at, right? Once you have a good understanding of the author's intent in the text... Right? That's what we're after when we do hermeneutics. Authorial intent. Because what the human author meant is exactly what God meant. Because God's inspiring it, right? So once you have a good understanding of authorial intent in the text, there is no deeper spiritual meaning. That is the meaning. Okay? Regardless of how that's being used, right? You you can't sit around in a group, as we all know. We've all heard this kind of. You can't sit around in a group and say, "Well, that's what it means to me." I don't want to know what it means to you. I want you to tell me what it means. So when you're studying the Bible. You're not trying to figure out what it means to you. You're trying to understand what it means, what God means by what he's saying. And we'll get into in a moment about applications and implications. But right now, I just want to talk about that. Authorial intent is understanding what it means. There isn't secondary lowercase meanings and higher meanings, and if I'm super spiritual, I can really catch on to the higher meaning of all this kind of stuff. What the author meant is what the author meant. Derek? We don't have to do this now, but... Okay, thank you. No, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) No one example, I mean, we asked you about it earlier, like 1 Corinthians 5.11, is that something we yeah, we can talk about it later. I want to bring up another one that you guys brought up, or that we brought up, and I don't want you guys to chime in when I bring it up because I want to ask a question of the class on the same kind of thing. Oh, yeah, so appreciate it. Yeah. 
So you notice in Luke chapter 15, by the way, the context, right? We talk about context all the time. Context, context, context. The context of this entire passage isn't simply just verses 8 through 10, but you have to go all the way to verse 3 and go even farther down through verse 32. And it's obvious that what Jesus is doing and what he's talking about in those three parables that he shares is the reality of what God's attitude is towards the lost. So these are just visual examples that the author is using in order to teach what he's saying and teach us something about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he does it. That's why it says at the end of these things, I tell you in the same way, verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no repentance. So the first parable is that, right, one sheep is lost and he leaves the 99, he goes and searches for that one lost, and he rejoices over finding this one who repents. The second one is the same thing, this valuable uh, thing of great value to this person. They lose it, and yet they find it. They call their friends, rejoice with me, I found this. This is the same way that God treats us. How do I know that? Because verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So that's what it's driving at. It's not driving at all this weird, bizarre kind of stuff and trying to figure out who the woman is and who all these other things that are going on. It's not doing that. Of course, we understand verse 11 through 32 is the prodigal son. We talk about it, each one of us. And those of us who have kids, hopefully we don't use that terminology sometimes for our own children. That's my prodigal one. You know, Sometimes that may be true, but that's not what this passage is trying to show us. It isn't trying to give us an example for how someone who is being disobedient runs off and does their own thing. The passage is all about God and his love for those who are lost. That's what it's about. So that's how we have to teach it. I used this example uh, some time ago, I think, maybe even when we started class, I can't remember, over in Luke chapter 10 with the Good Samaritan. Remember that? Talked about that? The passage of the Good Samaritan that we like to talk about in our own society and everything else, and we like to say it's about a person who helps other people and all these other kinds of things. We find these moral principles there. That's not what this passage is about. It's all about this lawyer who says, how can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? And so Jesus tells him this whole thing so that he'll realize he can't do anything. He has to be perfect. And so when you understand the text, you don't need to look for any kind of lower levels or upper levels of meaning. That's what it means. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. Scriptures do not contain levels of meaning. Yeah. So... What does that mean when you're in prophecy where it has maybe two different applications? We're going to, get, different we're going to get to that. Okay. Yep. Can't wait. Yep. So one, one more thing to pile on. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you, you look at 
like the ark, you know, the story of the flood. Yeah. I wouldn't consider that another level of meaning. I would consider that uh, because typology, Al just brought you into it, typology is clear part of Scripture, right? We understand that, and we'll, we'll look at that in a minute in a few other passages, but the ark and, and other things from the Old Testament, Jesus clearly brings in and understands that even Peter brings the, the ark in in his description of how baptism now saves you, he says in 1 Peter. Well, we know baptism doesn't save us. What baptism is he talking about? And, and, and just as the ark, he talks about that. What's he talking about there? I mean, are these deeper levels of meaning there? we got to search for that. I mean, this was what numerology is all about. When you, you hear the... Da Vinci Code and all this other kind of nonsense. They're looking for this secret key to get the underneath and find the secret door behind the panel so that I can really understand what, what this book is saying. We don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. Why? Because we understand those things clearly in Scripture from the context, from the author's intent. So, did you have a hand up back there? Okay. So there's not a secondary meaning okay, in that sense. The author didn't say, ooh, I'm going to write this, but I'm really going to mean something else, and nobody's going to be able to know that. No author did. No author did. Okay, so what about spiritualizing the text? We hear that sometimes. Spiritualizing. What is spiritualizing? Well, spiritualizing the text suggests that there is a deeper disguised spiritual meaning or a deeper disguised application that is not immediately obvious from the grammar and the syntax of a, of a passage. So you go into it, when you spiritualize a text, you go into a Bible study with the desire to find some deeper spiritual meaning that actually pushes you in your own heart and mind past the actual meaning of the author. So you, what you're really doing is taking the authorial intent, throwing it aside and going, there's got to be something else there. Some people like to call that the leading of the Spirit. The leading of the Spirit. Right? But that's really, if you do that, it's really opposite of the leading of the Spirit. Why? Because you end up missing what the Spirit is actually saying in the text. Who is the one who gave us the Word of God? The Spirit. He's not going to throw what He gave aside and go, oh, there's something else. I just didn't tell you about it. That's frightening, isn't it? Right? That's what people say. Oh, I just have this impression. I just have this spiritual impression that it means more than that. It's frightening. It's frightening. <clears throat> the spiritual meaning of the text is communicated to us 
through the means by which God uses in language. He accommodated us by giving us language. So it's communicated to us through all of the literary conventions that we have about any given text. We understand the genre. We understand the culture. We understand all these things. We understand grammar. We speak to one another. Every language speaks to one another with the same kind of grammar. There's always things they're talking about that are acting upon things that they're talking about. Subject, verbs, objects. I don't care how they switch those words around, but that's it. And then they have other phrases that modify them. Every language. There. Would it be spirit of spiritualizing the tools? That, like, for example, like they don't say Genesis is actual six, it's an actual six-day account. They say it's oh, it's not what it means. Is that? That would be that would be spiritualizing the text, or that would be trying to find a different or a, a higher level of meaning in a text. That it's not what the author intended. Uh, just wanted to comment quickly on, on A and B. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever read the Passion Translation, but in the Passion Translation, which I read a long time ago, and it's heretical, but in Matthew 13, when they talk about the tears in the wheat, and Jesus explains that the field is the world, and then the next one is the treasure and in the field, they say that the treasure is the world, and Jesus is the one that sold it all to claim his prize. Yep. Not what it means, but it, they give it, give it a, a higher meaning spiritualized. So the name, that's the name. Right. And this is part of the problem with, with some of these quote unquote Bible translations that are out there that are like that. The message, um, uh, uh, some others that were out there years ago. What's that? The Amplified Bible, these kind of things. Yeah, they're, they are, they are uh, more like interpretive uh, stories. Yeah. Really. Well, they're worse than commentaries. Well, the message claims that. The worst in so, when it comes to spiritualizing, we, we don't bring out the meaning of the text. That's not what we're trying to do. We are simply trying to reveal or uncover the intended meaning of the author. Right? So we're not, we're not bringing something out and going, ooh, hey, look what I found. Unless that's the intended meaning of the author. And we say, look what, the, look what, look what the Bible say. So there aren't different levels of meaning. We can't spiritualize it as we have defined it. And we, so what is allegorizing? What is allegorizing? Ben. That would be more spiritualizing, okay? They would they would try to find a deeper meaning, a deeper spiritualized meaning to that. But you're on track. The allegory is like, well, it's not specifically the Bible, but the Chronicles of Narnia. It's like an allegory. Chronicles of Narnia, uh, John Bunyan's um, yeah, Pilgrim's Progress. Those are allegories. Allegory. Yeah. 
right? An allegory is, is the representation of spiritual, moral, or other uh, abstract meaning through the actions of some actual or fictional character that are symbols of those meanings. Did you repeat that? Sure. <laughs> An allegory is the representation of spiritual, moral, or other abstract meaning through the actions of some actual or fictional characters that serve as symbols of those meanings. We'll go back to Galatians chapter 4. Right? Paul clearly says exactly how he is using that. Right? This is allegorical. So here you have actual characters that are representing a spiritual meaning. And so Paul uses these two and he tries to, and he, and he delineates that as you go through there. So allegory is, is something we use. Um, it's a means of, of, of helping our interpretation that acknowledges the literal meaning of the text. It's not spiritualizing the text. It's something that's not the literal meaning of the text. Right? We're taking Galatians 4 literally as Paul's saying it. These are literal people that he's talking about. Sarah and Hagar, it's not trying to spiritualize them and make them all these different kinds of things, right? So we acknowledge the literal meaning, but there is a sense in which, um, I don't want to say it's deeper because there isn't a deeper meaning, but there's an attached meaning to it that Paul is using them to drive home a meaning so that they, we understand it better. So it's not necessarily just an illustration. It's, it's not an illustration, but it's, it's allegory. Um, so an allegorical interpretation, you have to be careful because it's, it can be dangerous. It can be um, misleading <coughs> if you're not careful with it. But it's a device we use to understand certain parts of Scripture. Al brought up one when it comes to the ark. Um, in fact, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Notice, beginning in verse 18, Peter says, for Christ died, also died for sins once for all. <clears throat> okay, so now you have this Peter building his argument from what he said before in the beginning of chapter 3 about godly living, right? Be submissive, and he talks about husbands and wives being submissive and all these kinds of things. He talks about us being submissive to the Lord, 
right? Um, even if you should suffer, verse 14, uh, for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. So when you do the right thing, even if you suffer for that, you're, you're honoring Christ. Just continue to do what is right. Keep a good conscience, verse 16, so that the things which are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Why? Because it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right then rather than for doing what is wrong. Because, or for, Christ also died for sins once for all. In other words, Christ suffered for your sin. Your suffering is no different just for the unjust. He was just. He should have never suffered. And he suffered unjustly. So when you're suffering unjustly, think of Christ. In order, he did that in order that he might bring us to God. Now he's going from the example of Christ and how we can look to Christ to what this accomplishes. And he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then he gives into, gets into this very hard passage in Scripture for us to understand sometimes, in which also he went and made proclamation to spirits in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now you're traveling all the way back in the Old Testament, thinking about what what was happening then. This is prior to the flood in the days of Noah, the wicked people, they're all evil. And you remember what happens in Genesis chapter 6. you got the sons of God come down and have this weird interaction that goes on with the women of the earth and have these people called the Nephilim. They're just these giants. Where it's, you find any commentator who can say definitively exactly what those people were. Was it demons cohabitating with, with people and they had these bizarre human people that part of that wickedness was why God had to destroy the whole earth. This is where Peter's going and talking about Christ and his, his uh, rescue operation, if you will. He says, it was the patience of God who kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, what does the that word refer to? Is that the only thing it refers to? What's that? Patience of God. Eight people being brought through the water, corresponding to the eight people being brought through the water. Can you go back to in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in person? Which he went and proclaimed. Could you go back to Christ's suffering and sins? You have to go back to it all of it. It's all of it. It's in Christ and because of Christ and because of what God was doing in the future with Christ that God was being patient even in the days of Noah and bringing through. What what was the flood, by the way? What was the flood by way of its action? Judgment of God. So so the waters, I'm not reading into this, they were brought safely through water. 
The water was the outpouring of God's judgment on this earth, right? It was the result of God's judgment. So they're being brought through God's instrument of judgment safely by God's patience. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. So in those days, these eight people were brought through the wrath of God by God's kindness and mercy as he envelops them in this wooden boat that they built. All because of what Christ was going to do in the future. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. You talking about being dunked in water? What's he talking about? Being baptized into Christ saves us. Christ is our ark. He takes us through the wrath of God. Right? This is what Peter's talking about. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. I'm not talking about a water baptism where you take a bath. No, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's saying because Christ is alive and Christ paid the price, you are saved in Christ. He's your ark. So here's a here's this, this whole allegorical reality taking place in Peter's mind. He's using history, actual history, but using that so that we understand what Christ does for us so that when we suffer, we go, hey, I can, I can endure this. Christ carried me through. There's what, what can happen to me? I've been carried through the wrath of God. So it's important to understand these things, right? It's important. Go to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5. Notice what it says. Isaiah, a prophet to Israel, right? Chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed the stones, planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So now that's the picture. That's a reality. Israel was filled with these kind of places, right? Vineyards. And verse 3 changes, right? It changes to help us understand, what are you talking about? And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So it's God talking to them and saying, okay, you now look at my vineyard and tell me, what more was there to do? My vineyard I have not done to it. What can I have done more? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it? No, it produced worthless ones. So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled to the ground. I will lay it to waste, 
It will not be pruned. It will not be hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds not to rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is what? House of Israel. You talking about a real vineyard? No. No. Talking about Israel. God is judging Israel. And he uses this vineyard picture as an allegory to help them understand. I'm going to judge the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Why? Because he looked for justice, but only found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So what the vineyard is Israel, what they were supposed to produce is righteousness and all they produced was worthless stuff. God says, I planted this vineyard and, and it didn't do anything. So I'm going to destroy it. Get rid of it. Allegory. Allegory. We understand it? Yeah. So would it be safe to say then that really if you're going to look for an allegory in a text, it should be something that's actually spoken in the text as opposed to trying to make up your own allegory? Yeah, you can't make up your own. <laughs> you can't make up your own. Not to be accurate. Yeah, yeah. Too many people try to make up their own, and it's not what the Bible means. Yeah. Let the author's intent drive it. Could clarify? Allegorizing a text is reading into it an allegorical meaning when it should be taken literally. Is that correct? Yes, but. Allegory that's clear in the text should be taken literally as an allegory. Right, but taking into account the figures of speech like allegory. Right, like right, that. right. But I know a lot of people like to read allegory into like right. Song of Solomon or Revelation right. and they, like, they don't want to take it literally. Yeah, you don't want to read allegory into the text that isn't literally in the text. <clears throat> I think that's what you're trying yes, to say. Yes, that's the meaning of allegorizing. Exactly. Would it be allegorizing what like the Catholic Church does when they say that that's why they have a priesthood because of the Old Testament priesthood? I don't know that that would be. I don't know that that would be allegorizing because there's true priests in the Old Testament. I think that's just a misunderstanding of of what the author intended. Somebody over here had a question. Yeah, Russ. Right. Yeah, Genesis in Galatians four. Yeah, yeah. Chris, I was just saying. I was saying exactly what Kate said. That there's there's good people that you may you may find good commentary, but that's the challenge of reading commentaries is that where they very well may be good in a lot of places, then all of a sudden you find them uh, allegorizing Psalm and Revelation significant. Right, and some and sometimes the that line gets crossed when it comes to the implications of the text. We'll talk about that in a minute. But sometimes people say, "Well, that's uh, I'm just allegorizing," when really you're you're trying to take a principle and and, and draw out its implications. Would you say that some people think that? 
some of the history of the well, things that actually happened in the Bible, they're saying, well, that's allegory. Sure. You know, I mean, that's that's why people misunderstand Genesis. They don't mean literal days. What do you mean? That's not literal, no. In fact, it's very popular right now in liberal theology to just dismiss authorial uh, or the historicity of the first five books of the Bible. That it's all just mythical. Well, if it's mythical, then I get to decide exactly what it says, and I can say it says anything. Just because other (coughs) religions, if you will, have origin stories that are similar to what the Bible says doesn't discount the Bible's veracity. No, you know why they have those stories? Because the Bible says what it says. They've drawn it from the Judeo-Christian history, which is the history of our world. Sure, sure. Everything's everything's under question in liberal theology, particularly to, in today's market when it comes to the first five books of Moses. Because if if Adam's not real, then Adam didn't fall. And if Adam didn't fall, then I can take care of my sin myself. I don't have to face a judgment God. And so that's the issue. It's really the issue. So if I can just erase all that and make it fuzzy, then I don't have a problem. I, hey, eat, drink, and be merry, because, listen, this is the only life we got. It's okay. You worry about yourself. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. exactly. He's referring to an example we had when we were out in the West, going to a national park, and they have these boardwalks. You walk with the signs to say, stay on the boardwalk, and it was crowded. We were all walking, and one lady gets off the boardwalk, walking towards it, gets off. And I said, hey, and she goes, I, I'm okay, you just worry about yourself. <laughs> okay, that sign only refers to us. I get it. I get it. Special needs. Yeah. yeah. Just mystery. She must have been an It's an allegory. What's that? She must have been an England. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think she was. <laughs> I think she said, I'm wicked good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is what is typology? Typology, right? Typology is a method. I won't even. It's just even hard to say it this way. Typology as a method of interpretation, I should say, is a way of of looking at the scriptures and certain things in them or events in the Bible that point to and and clearly point to the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who ultimately fulfills them. Okay, you have to repeat like three more times. Okay, typology as a method of interpretation is is a means of interpreting certain things or events in the Bible that point to or foreshadow what Jesus Christ ultimately fulfills. So in the passage we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, there's a sense in which there's typology taking place there in Peter's writing. 
because he's using that whole scenario pointing to the, the ark as a type of Christ. He's not saying the ark is Christ. Not going that far. He's just giving, using it as a type. This is what carried them through the wrath. Christ is what carries us through the wrath. That's what he's using. Right? We can go to other places to look at that. Psalm, I'll go to a very popular one. Psalm 22. Who wrote Psalm 22? David. He's the author. Obviously the Spirit, you know, inspiring. Psalm 22. David is writing about his own sufferings, his own difficulties, his own struggles. And yet, in this psalm, he's, there's, a, there's an envisioning, if you will, of Christ in his crucifixion. So David is being used by God here in a typological way as a type of Christ. He's not Christ, but it's a picture pointing to, foreshadowing the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And we know that clearly, even more so clearly, because we have the New Testament and we have the very words of Jesus Christ himself. As he uses the very words of David my God, my God, why has you forsaken me? He's there on the cross. In fact, some believe, some theologians would even say and believe that when Jesus was on the cross, and and some would say when he's muttering and people don't understand, he's saying he's praying this this very song. Don't know that's speculation. And so you can you can read through this psalm and you, you see what's going on with Jesus Christ and yet this psalm in actual historicity is about David even though it's foreshadowing in a type sense of Jesus Christ. So a type a type is a biblical event uh, a person an institution, an object like the ark, which serves as some kind of example or pattern for other events uh, that are surrounding around Christ. And Revelation is full of typology. Joe? Does it necessarily have to be about Christ? Because no. I was going to say that uh, the thing about Isaiah talking about the king of Tyre, I think, mm-hmm. but he's really talking about right. Yeah. Yeah. Most often, the typology is pointing to Jesus Christ in some kind of way, but there are instances like that in Scripture where you have type prophetic events, prophetic typology. That's normally where typology is seen the most. Prophecy, where you have it of that kind of thing. There. Isn't the word also like for the 
sorry? No, Christophany is a pre-incarnate, uh, like in the burning bush, something like that. The angel of the Lord sometimes in the Old Testament is a Christophany, pre-incarnate view of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, not necessarily. That's why, that's why in First Peter it says, the prophets of old wrote these things and looked into them, looking to the things that they didn't even know. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that exactly as it says it. I'll read it just so, so we have it clearly in our mind. But, but that's what he's talking about. They were, they were speaking of things they didn't even know. They were, it says, and to this salvation, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, and to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or, or the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they're looking into these things, and it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves, but you. So they're writing things, looking into what they're writing, and going, this is pointing to something else. This point, this is this is foreshadowing something to come. I mean, I, I can't even fathom how that goes. You know? Isn't isn't that like the um, on the um, when Philip is is running along the chariot? And the guy's reading Isaiah. Ethiopian is, eunuch is yeah, in Acts. Because he didn't know what it was until Philip had explained it. He said, how would I know what I'm reading if somebody doesn't tell me what it is? Yeah. There. Would that also be like kind of that same, you know, like Hebrews 11, the prophets, you know, inspired to a far better country, but looking forward not knowing what was on the other side. Well, yeah. Well, what he's saying there in Hebrews chapter 11 is that faith doesn't see, uh, or faith sees, but it, but it's not not a physical reality. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We believe even though we can't see it. That's what he's talking about. Yeah, so that's not really typology. And and in the Ethiopian eunuch, he just didn't understand the scriptures. Well, these are the people who are praying to an unknown God. Well, you're talking about Acts 17 when Paul's in, in Athens. Yeah, but they were just pantheists. They were just, you know, they were... They would have a god, all kinds of gods. They worshipped anything, and so anyone they didn't, they thought they might have missed. They had a statue to an unknown god, just in case we missed one. We'll name that one too. It was unknown, so a little different. All right, that's clear as mud to y'all. All right, all right. So here's here's the question. Here's a question I want to want to ask before we move on to uh, to the next part. I was asked this question recently, and the guys in my discipleship group don't get to answer, and neither do the elders. Okay. Is it 
Is it right for a woman to teach the Bible to a mixed group of people? I'll ask it this way. Could a woman be up here teaching this class and expounding the scriptures to this group? And and I don't want you to just give an answer. I want you to tell me why you're giving that answer. Crickets. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Joe. Um, I shouldn't let you answer either. But I'll just okay. um, I would say no because she's exercising authority, and it's not on a Sunday morning just to be corporate worship. It's, it's the authority over a man that God forgetting. Okay, so no, no, because she's exercising authority. Okay, but why? Why is that the prohibition? Or why are you saying that's the prohibition? Well, because Paul says that's the prohibition because he was deceived and not the man. Therefore, I don't, I don't allow a woman to exercise authority over a man. <coughs> so I, I believe it to be, just like you believe, if we're deciding calling biblical, but that's how I would interpret that. Okay, so you're saying a woman can't be teaching in this mixed kind of environment, exercising authority because she's the one who was deceived or or her predecessor was the one deceived in the garden. Yeah, from the scriptures. Like Debbie could teach a Greek class, but I don't think it's biblical for her to teach from the scriptures to a mixed group. Expound the scriptures. She could teach grammar. She could teach Bible grammar, language grammar, things like that but can't stand up and say in a mixed group, open your Bibles too, I want to teach you what this text means by what it says. And you're saying, because that's a position of authority, and Eve was the one who sinned, or or was deceived in the garden, and God God says, because of that. And yet God gave man the headship to be the leader responsible. Okay, anybody else? Nobody else? Everybody believes Joe? It's a lot of power, pal. Look at Jess. Wait a minute. I'll stand up. And then I'll sit right back. If I would have just said it, that would have been enough. But he didn't just say it. He explained why he said it. Joe, you mean? Or Paul. Okay, tell us. That's exactly what Joe read. First Timothy. First Timothy chapter two, verses eleven. Men must learn in quietness and all submission. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority. Or do not allow a woman to teach. Remain quiet. And he explains it. Yeah. Why? And here's the why. Right. Here's the only reason why. People come up with all kinds of reasons for why women ought to be preachers and teachers today and all this kind of stuff when it comes to the Bible. And let me tell you, there are some women in evangelicalism that have some massive gifting when it comes to standing in front of people and talking. And and they know how to study the Bible. Is that enough reason for them? They're experts in the Bible. They study the Bible. They're saved, genuinely saved people. Is that reason enough for them to stand up in front of a group of people like this, and say, thus says the Lord. 
people are saying it. There's a lot of people in evangelicals today saying it is. So what do they do with these verses? Exactly. <laughs> that's, the, that's the question you need to ask them. So what do you do with this? You know what normally the answer is? That was cultural. That was cultural. That was, that was the culture at the time. But that's not what Paul meant. Really? That wasn't his, that he's the author. That wasn't his intent in writing this. And so there's some special meaning for us, or we can just disregard what Paul meant because culture? Isn't the Bible transcultural? I mean, every culture, right? Doesn't matter what culture. Every culture, the Bible is transcultural. It speaks to all of them. Diane. You just asked one. <laughs> she just wants to make sure she's not sitting. <laughs> no, that's not what he's. That's not what he's saying there, right? He, he, he certainly couldn't be saying that. Although there is a sense in which, in the culture of that time, women weren't worshiping in the synagogue like men were, and so they needed to learn from their husband, which can put a responsibility on their husbands that most men don't want, sadly. Alonzo, Derek, you don't get the answer, so just... Right now, that question. It's kind of what you're saying. Oh, yeah. You know, like, it's like Adam who was frustrated and then you use it was Adam who was offered Adam who was... Uh, and it's not Adam who was But then, you know, we realize, how could we realize that? But then the implication is, is that But but notice in the text that's true, in the sense of the of the fall. But notice in the text what comes first. The only answer we need to that silliness that's out in liberal evangelicalism today in this in this realm is the answer that the apostle Paul gives. Notice what he says first, because verse thirteen four. It was Adam who was first created, then Eve. So what's he talking about? Who who did that? God did it. God designed it. God made it that way. It, it, he doesn't say, well, you know, I know Eve had a lot of gifting. And she probably knew a lot more than Adam. But, you know... Maybe it's just cultural. No. Paul says, listen, here's the answer. Here's why I don't let a woman exercise authority over men. Here's the only answer, because God designed it that way. Amen. That's where you've got to start. So if you start by saying it's culture, now you're going all the way back to the garden and saying, well, God messed up. Because Paul takes you all the way back to the beginning. Before the fall. Was there even culture then? I'm sorry? Would you even call it culture then? You couldn't call it culture. God created a design. 
His design is perfect. And that that headship relationship is by God's design. Now listen, we all understand abuses happen. We all understand that. All of us who have relationships with anybody, and there's always some kind of authority relationship going on. There's abuses all over the place. Husbands abuse their authority all the time, sadly and sinfully. And wives abuse their role in the, in the home as well by not doing what God has called them to be and do. They want to usurp the authority and take the role. And it happens in the church. And so you got these women who say, I'm gifted and I understand the Bible. I should be, I'm a preacher. I went to seminary. I'm a preacher. No, you're not. No, you're not. If you want to preach, go home and preach to your kids. That's why, and that's why Dr. MacArthur got in so much trouble when someone asked him about, uh, was it Paul White? Who was it? Beth Moore. He said, what about Beth Moore? He said, go home. So he said, go home. Why did he say that? This passage? This passage? Not because he's some chauvinist guy. Just because... She's not to exercise authority, and that's what she does. So if you have Beth more Bible studies in your home, get rid of them. I was just going to say as well, Tom uh, Real made a good point last week as he talked about the SBC and all that, that it, it, despite how good the woman may be in executing exact speaking and all that, she's a walking in sin. Therefore, it is not thus saith the Lord, because the Lord is not speaking through her as if, like, if you were carrying on multiple relations with women all over the church, and you came in, God's not with you. You're in sin, and you know it. So, How much sin do you have to be in? How much? Yeah. Any, any sin. Any well, sin? So, so are you saying every time anybody preaches or teaches, they have to be sinless? No, no. But if you're blatantly, knowingly walking in sin, unrepentantly, unrepentant, then... Unrepentance? Yes. Yeah. Because we're all sinning all the time. Because if that's the interpretation of the Bible, we have to have no sin. I'm putting in my resignation. I want my money back. (laughs) And you're going to (laughs) preach. I know. I was teaching fours and fives this week with mm-hmm. Rebecca, and, yeah. uh, and the message, the story was on the fall, and so I was talking to the kids about sin. It's funny when you ask kids that age, are you a sinner? They don't quite know how they should answer that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm like, well, I'm a sinner. Mrs. Johnston, you're a sinner, right? You know, so. I'll be a big sinner. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that it's just ingrained in kids. They're not sure how to answer it. Yeah. Sometimes we're not sure how to answer it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We ought to be more forthcoming, huh? So, just a comment. It seems like th- that situation, because that used to be my, you know, I went to seminary, and, and I'm, I'm educated, and, and I, I, want, I wanted to be, not a pastor, but a teacher, and it took me a while before God actually saved me and, and brought me on the right path. But I think that what's happening, is, and you talk about it a lot, is that pragmatism has entered the church, and that's where that whole problem starts. Well, yeah, pragmatism and feminism. Feminism has infected everything, and, and, and particularly in the church these days, where, right, and our world embraces all of that. And so, you know, the, the Helen Reddy, I am woman, watch me grunt and grow into whatever a man can do. 
And, uh, and, and now what is happening in our world, sadly, it's, it's feminism 2, 3, 4.0, whereas women now are being erased. You can't even call yourself a woman anymore. Right? And if a man wants to be a woman, he can be that. And now a woman is now somebody that you don't even know what a woman is. So that's, that's what's happening. But we want to keep, keep women women because we, we think God designed them just as he's supposed to design them. And so we just want to do it God's way. Yeah. Women teaching other women, no problem. No problem. No problem. No problem, yeah. Back in the back. Um, no, I was just what he was saying. I was just looking it up for um, in Titus to the older women to teach, but they're supposed to teach younger women, right. train them to love their husbands and their children, to be self-imposed, who are working at home, kindly submissive to their own husbands, that the Lord of God may not be the Lord. Right. So, I was thinking about, uh, I talked to Kaylee about, after we talked about this. And uh, there was one time after I got my shoulder surgery that I sat in the class with her when she was uh, Katie's uh, assistant at Pathfinders. And Katie was teaching the class about Paul and the mission and stuff. Was that wrong of me to be sitting in there and listening to her teach the class? <laughs> Katie probably should have said, Joe, you probably are not. How many did it once? <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Was he observing or was he being caught? Well, I mean, he's, he's not a leader in the church. So I think that would be different in the way it's. Exercise. Obviously, Katie wasn't trying to exercise authority over the man. He's our second adult. So there's there's some of that that goes on in practice. Part of it's the heart issue, right? Beth Moore and others like Paula White and others like that say I'm I'm I am authority, and so there's a sinful heart issue going on, and they're saying that that passage doesn't mean that, right? Joe's not saying this passage doesn't mean that. He's saying I. My arm hurt and I needed to sit in there or whatever. So I think there's a difference there. You know, it's not a practice of ours to say, oh, yeah, it's okay, go ahead. You know, we just have to be careful because we don't want the Word of God to be blasphemed, right? Jess just read the passage, right? We don't want the Word of God, somebody to go, oh, well, see, they did it, so I can do it. So we just have to be careful. Damn. You All right, so what role, what's the Holy Spirit's role in interpretation? Derek, yeah, you can answer. Okay, part of it, right? John chapter 16, right, verses 12 to 14, right? The Spirit illumines, but also the Holy Spirit is the divine author, right? He's the divine author. Where do we find that? 
Second Timothy three sixteen. Right? Second Timothy three sixteen uses the word inspired, which really is a compound word in the original language. It means it's God breathed or God and the Spirit. Theos Neustos is the word, yes. Right? So God, the Spirit, is is vitally involved with the Word of God from its very inception. So that that's what we call inspiration, but the work of helping us understand to, to actually believe and understand is the doctrine that Derek mentioned, illumination. We have inspiration, Holy Spirit, but he's also involved in illumination, right? And the Spirit's work of illumination never contradicts the authorial intent. The Spirit is not going to illumine you with something that goes against or contradicts what he inspired. So in a sense, can't you say that the Holy Spirit is the one that helps you to understand the authority? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the doctrine of illumination. Right? So if your personal experience or some kind of religious tradition goes against the Word of God, it's not Spirit-inspired. You didn't get that as a result of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit will never add new meaning to a text. The Spirit intends to help us as believers so that we understand the text. Diane. We can, we can. We got ten minutes. We can go through. All this stuff's in the next class. So here's here's the next question. Can you fully understand the text apart from the spirit? No. Can you, the Christian, fully understand the Bible, what it says, what the author wrote, apart from the Spirit? Yes, but only partially. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Right there in front of you. Right in front of you. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, right? We can understand things cognitively, right? We can understand language, meaning of language, things like that, just like an unbeliever can. But not in the sense of being illumined. We need the Spirit to illumine us to the, to the, to the meaning of it. Right? You can understand the words on the page. You can do that apart, right? Sin affects us. How we see things through our sinful eyes, our fallenness, affects that, right? We have uh, tendencies to not believe 
which can confuse us. We need the Spirit. We need Him to help. Right? Because of an understanding of the Word of God as God intends us to understand it involves a willingness in us to not just intellectually know it, but a willingness to do it. Right? A willingness to do it. Because it is... Uh, what does it say in uh, John 14? Go to John 14. This is what he says. John 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments, that's not just, yes, we have it, but we, we have it in the sense that we intellectually have it, right? We have it, and what? Keeps them, does them. He it is who loves me. Okay, so now we're, we're linking up what we're talking about here with the Spirit with, with this idea of implication, application, Right? We can't just intellectually have things. We have to have that desire to do it. Like Romans 12, 1. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Right? And you put that into practice. So, so we, we can only know the Scriptures partially if we just know them intellectually. We have to know them experientially. We have to do them. We have to do what it said. So we can we can understand the meaning of the text, but if we're not doing it, we're not really understanding. We have to have a Hebrew mindset. That was the Hebrew mindset. You didn't know it if you weren't practicing it. You will know them by their fruit. Right? Can an, can an unbeliever understand the meaning of a Bible passage? No. Why? How do you know that? How do I know what? No, how, is there a Bible passage that tells us anything like that? Yes. First Corinthians chapter 2. We have the mind of Christ. 2 verse 14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised. You have to have the Spirit. They can understand words, things on a page in the English language in that kind of sense, but they don't know experientially and can't understand it through illumination, they don't have the Spirit. But they can understand intellectually. They can have an intellectual understanding of concepts and things like that. But to know that experientially, they cannot. They're spiritually appraised. Right? He who is spiritual appraises all things. So the central truth of illumination, the illumination work of the Holy Spirit is 
that the Spirit gives us eyes of faith, right? To believe it, see it, believe it. And that that's the eyes of faith is the is when God quickens us to life, right? We believe, and yet there's an ongoing belief, right? We walk by faith. We walk by faith. So you have to have the Holy Spirit. But that's not all you need. You don't need just the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit intends to do, lead you in truth, but you have to do your part. Right? You can't sleep on your pillow with your Bible under it and go, okay, Spirit, do your work. <laughs> you understand it. Right? you got to read it, got to know it, got to study it, got to dig in, to understand <clears throat> Spirit doesn't create new meaning, doesn't provide new information, but you certainly can rely on the Spirit to help you understand it and then put it into practice. The unbeliever doesn't have that. So what about application? What about it? What's the difference between meaning and application. Joe again. <coughs> uh, meaning is, is what the text is trying to do. God's meaning, the truth of it, and application is, is that meaning being lived out, your heart being transformed by what you understand to be true, and then your body and your will. Okay, meaning is what the biblical author intended, right? The authorial intent, that's meaning. What he intended to communicate to the original audience. So you have to, you should be asking yourself that question. What would the original audience have understood this to mean? That's why we say the word dunamis is not dynamite. The original authors didn't have dynamite. They weren't meaning that. Okay. So meaning is tied to the author's writing. And meaning is the same for every Christian. Why? Because it's authorial intent, right? That's the meaning. Doesn't mean something to you and means something different, right? Meaning doesn't change from person to person or circumstance. It's the same. Why? Because God intended it to mean what he meant it to mean. But application, or what I prefer to say, implication, varies. I'll give you an example. I've given it many, many times before. The guys in my discipleship group would know this. Can the women in this class or the single guys in this class Put into practice Ephesians 5.25. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
what was Paul's intended meaning when he wrote that? What's the author's intent? Husbands, love your wives. But is there an implication there that every Christian can put into practice? If 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is clear that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for rebuke, for training in righteousness, isn't there something there implicationally from the truth that that's teaching that a single guy and a woman can put into practice? What kind of love is he talking about? <coughs> kind of love is a husband supposed to love his wife with? The same kind as Christ, right? Love your wives just as Christ. Also love the church. Oh, so it's the same kind as Christ love. Is there any kind of love that I'm supposed to express as a single man, if I was single, or as a woman that has a love of Christ for others? But there are implications. But there is a, a wide berth implication sure. about love that I can put into practice. Right, but there's scripture that talks specifically Certainly, but I but I don't want to say, well, I don't have to read that verse or deal with that verse because it doesn't talk to me. Because there are implications there that do talk to you that are from the intended meaning of the author. Sacrificial love. You've preached on this passage before, and I remember you saying, all right, this passage about wives yep. you know, submitting to your husband. Guys, don't check out. There's exactly. Here for, you, for, here for you too. Exactly. And when it says wives submit to your husbands, is there anything a single gal who doesn't have a husband or a man can learn from that? Authority, there's an idea of submission to authority there that I can certainly put into practice in my life and evaluate areas in my life where maybe I'm not being submissive as I ought to be. Derek, I don't read sign language. <laughs> no, I was just thinking too when you, when you started first, first being a biblical eldership. I'm like, I'm not a pastor. It's like, and you just said this is qualifications every biblical man should have. Yeah, I mean, you could go right there. There's a whole nother passage, First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Is that only that the elders of the church should read that? And go, well, I'm not an elder. I don't have to deal with that passage. In fact, there's only five books in the Bible that only deal with me. So I'm going to, all the other 61, I just, I just won't read. I never built an ark. Wasn't there when God created the world. Right? I don't have to deal with that. Nothing there I can learn from that. This is what I'm talking about. Implications. When we hear a biblical text, we, we shouldn't be saying, well, that doesn't have anything to say to me. We ought to be thinking about what the meaning of that text is by the author's intent and, and going, okay, is there principles there I can begin to apply in my life? Is there principles from that text that I can put into practice? Especially general principles like that. Right? Our response to the meaning of a text is being able to discern the areas of action and attitude and heart motivations that need to change in us. 
Certainly when Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, do not be conformed to this world, not every single one of us live within the same sphere of the world as everybody else. And so how the world is conforming me isn't the same way it's conforming you. And so i got to think about that. What do I might have to check and put checks and balances on in my actual practice that deal with that? Whereas somebody else might not be having to do that. So I can't say, here's the way that verse must apply to us. I can't say that. That may touch one or two of you. That's why you rarely hear me say, here's five ways we can put this into practice in our life from the pulpit. Why you rarely hear me say that? Because there's no way in the world I could ever discern exactly how it needs to be applied in all of our life. That's the Spirit's job. In your heart as you're taking the truth of that scripture and going, man, how is this affecting me? And what do I need to change? That's the spirit working. When you say, come up to me, Pastor, man, that, that message, you were, you were talking right to me. I don't have a clue what's going on. <laughs> That's the spirit of God talking to you. you know. And the only answer to that is when, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks is the one that got hit. If you're barking, know the Spirit's talking to you. <laughs> so you better do something about it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's in First <First> Terry. <laughs> the apocryphal book. Um, it's all positive because it's what also allows the ability to come along to somebody that could be struggling, a newly wed, or, or anybody for that matter. If we don't have the wisdom given us by God, how can we encourage another believer biblically if we don't everything? Right. Right. The Spirit leads us in understanding, and He just doesn't say, oh, okay, well, we'll leave that out for you. These are the kindergarten books, keeping these ones, stay away from that one. That's the upper level, that's college class book. You stay out of it. No, we just go to the text, go through our process of hermeneutics, read the text, read it over and over again, look at, strip the sentences, get the main point, start thinking about all that's going on, what was going on at the time, what the author, who is he writing to, what is he writing about, what's happening at the time, and think through that and go, oh, okay. Wow, I got some things I got to change. I got some things I got to work on. And then you'll start, you'll start going, man, when someone says, how should I apply that? Say, wait a minute, here's the principles. Let's think about the implications of that because implications go farther. They, they got tentacles that go into all kinds of different areas. And when it says I'm to love sacrificially, how many areas of my life in which I exercise love does that affect? There's yes. all kinds, right? Every time you wake up, you're going to get in the face again with it. Man, I failed there. Got to keep working on that. That's the implications. So that's the difference. And then there's that little chart there you got that helps you understand how to apply the meaning of a biblical text. You can just walk through that. When it says heart idolatry, that just means what it's working on in your heart. There is a section that's 
section 17 there outlining and summarizing a text, but you saw some of that when we did the block diagram. I was going through that with points and those kind of things. And I think it's fairly self-explanatory in your own outline there. Well, I said it was going to be a short class. You guys talk too much. <laughs> I think that's called wave shifting. Uh, yeah. It can happen in the garden. <laughs> sure. It was this class you gave me. Sorry. Somebody have a question? No? Okay. All right, Corey, what do you think? <laughs> Two thumbs up. The first time visitor. You feel like you're being watched?